Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Hello, and welcome to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and we'll soon be joined by Chris Osmar. We are historians of the Third Reich who specialize in the Gestapo, the secret state police. I look at the policing of average Germans, and Chris looks at the experience of foreign workers. We've decided to try something different this week. It's a new project that we're calling The Roots of Nazism. We've found that as we've been doing the discussions over the past few weeks, there are a few key terms that we keep coming back to that you simply can't get away from when you're trying to discuss and understand rule and life for average Germans in Nazi Germany. Well, rather than keep dancing around these ideas and defining them every time they come up, we thought that it would be interesting to have a discussion about some of the core concepts that help explain the rise and remarkably resilient popularity of National Socialism with average Germans. The first concept we're going to tackle is the people's community, the Nazi vision of community that they were trying to create. Now, the people's community, and whether or not it constitutes a useful theoretical tool to understand the, the rise and abiding support for Nazism, has been a topic of heated debate again recently. We'll be going over the origins of the idea, its rise to prominence in German political discourse, and the Nazi-specific version of it that ended up winning them power. This is a new approach for us, so we're interested to hear your feedback, whether you think it's something that you'd like to hear more of in the future. Chris eschews all social media, but you can get a hold of me through Twitter and I will be sure to pass along all of your comments. Without further ado, our discussion, The Roots of Nazism, Part 1, The People's Community. All right. Well, Chris suggested that we begin the, the discussion of the, this concept of Volksgemeinschaft, people's community or racial community in Nazi Germany, with a story from a few years back that he has always found extremely amusing. Uh, I had been in a, a particularly bad accident and was in the hospital and had been injected uh, with morphine. And of course, being the student of Nazi Germany that I am, thought this was hilarious because Goering was a morphine addict. And in, in my present state of discombobulation, this seemed like something to sort of discuss with the nurse who was attending to me. And after a few failed attempts of trying to explain why it was funny and uh, why why this sort of, uh, you know, what the connection with, with Nazi Germany was in my somewhat confused state of mind. I said, no, 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 no. It, it, uh, 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 it, it's Volksgemeinschaft. Just trust me. 
<laughs> uh, so, so this was a concept that really, really meant something to you, right? That e- even in that condition, like that, that was that was the solution. That was the key, the golden or the silver bullet that was going to solve all your problems, right? Well, it would it would explain the nature of the Nazi regime to this very this poor confused woman that I was babbling about uh, at, at in, a, in a somewhat deranged state. But yeah, um, it's it is it's a key concept for understanding uh, the origins of Nazism as a movement and its its rise to power and its enduring popularity with the German population. We should probably begin by telling people what it actually translates as like what what the word means so it's it's one of these uh wonderful german words where they smash a couple words together and you get a new and rich meaning out of them uh we have folk and gemeinschaft the people and community and of course in this context folk uh, means a very specific kind of people but we'll discuss how the concept develops uh but uh, it will come to refer to a a specific racial German community. Yeah, like the literal translation of folk is the English word folk in in a yeah. sort of ethnic. So it's people in a, a sort of ethnographic sense of practices and beliefs and all of the kind of cultural uh, implications that those carry with it. So sometimes people translate it as national community. Uh, other times they translate it as racial community because of those sort of ethnic overtones that it carries, and particularly what it what it came to represent in Nazi usage. At its core, it's it's the Nazi vision of community that they were trying to build in in Germany at that time. It was their vision of who belonged and what it meant to be a German. Yeah, and the reason this is a concept that is particularly interesting for historians in, in the current moment is that we can use it to try and understand how the regime functioned. Uh, If the people's community was a real existing thing, a a real social organization that the people participated in enthusiastically, well, then that explains what what kept the Nazi state running. Uh, You don't need to necessarily resort to, to terror if people are enthusiastic participants in this community. Whereas if this was just a propaganda approach by Nazi regime to present themselves as being representatives of the people or try and convince the people to support them, well, that's something entirely different. Uh, so it's a fundamental question. Was the Volksgemeinschaft something that was experienced? Was it something that was real? Was it something that was constructed by the regime to try and manipulate people? And because of that, it's it's a really important concept to unpack and try and understand. Yeah, even just what what did it mean to be a quote unquote racial comrade, right? Like, what was the criteria to be a member? Uh, there are some very clear and obvious people who are excluded. Anyone who's a non Aryan or a non German, but if within those boundaries, within the within Germans or who people who were defined as Germans according to the Nuremberg laws, what did it, what, what was a racial comrade? Was everyone a racial comrade or not? So, and then what did it mean to be excluded from that? So it's, it's a big, it's a big question that's kind of moving and has for the last 10 years or so been moving to the center of research 
as a new way of understanding the regime. But but first, I guess, if, if you want to understand why Germans turn to the Nazis and turn to this vision of community, it pays to go into some of the, the history of the idea. Where did the concept of a people's community come from and, and how did it, you know, how did the Nazis emerge with the version that captured the hopes and fears of the German people? Yeah, because the Nazis didn't invent this idea out of whole cloth, right? They were drawing on a, a specific and particular German experience going back uh, through Weimar, through through the First World War and into the Kaiserreich. Yeah, there's actually usage of the term dates back so far as we've been able to discover so far, half a century at least, into the late 19th century, uh, sort of the late 1800s there. But what, what's interesting about it is that it emerges at a time when there are very deep divisions in society. There's a lot of economic inequality at the end of the 19th century. You have the second wave industrial revolution, less and less need for labor. People have finished building all of the major railway products. So you don't need as much steel. You don't need as many workers laying down, uh, laying down railroads. There's a major shift in the way that the economy is organized going on at this time. And because of that, there's, there's an ever larger disenfranchised working class population. So at the end of the 19th century, at the same time, there's also this concentration of wealth and an increasing concentration of wealth in an ever smaller number of hands as you get the rise of cartels and monopolies and, and major industrial concerns at this time. So the question begins to arise. It's called the social question, the, the question of society. You know, what, do you, what do you do with all of these people that you, don't not, you no longer need for work or no longer have, need to pay as much for the work that does need to be done? So... It's, you know, they're perennial issues that continually come up in cycle and in human history. And it, it was a major problem at the end of the 19th century. Uh, an entire generation uh, and really the birth of the modern social sciences occurs in the late 19th century to deal with a lot of these issues and the, the consequences of social inequality and all of the social ills that come along with that. And, uh, you know, you get Max Weber Mac and Durkheim. Uh, there's this entire generation. Uh, there's actually a really great book by Kevin Rep. Um, I think it's uh, Reformers and Alternative Visions of Modernity or something like that. Anyway, regardless, this generation of reformers turned to the social sciences in answers to try and find an answer to this social question. Yeah, and, and the question is really centered around class like that that is the big issue that is that is how society has been stratified along class lines so the concept of community gemeinschaft is almost an alternative to society that has been broken down in this way through these inequalities of wealth as, as a consequence of industrialization you know all, all these problems associated with with class and, and inequality were were part of the, the society. And uh, in 1887, uh, Ferdinand Tonis started thinking about this. And he looked at these two concepts of society and community uh, and, and tried to tease out the differences between the two. 
suggesting that Gesellschaft society is something that's it's it's mechanical. It's, it's bound by rules, whereas Gemeinschaft, the the community, is uh, it's organic. That it it comes from the people, and he called for you know the creation of a community that was specific to the the nation and the time, and Max Weber ran with this idea and developed the 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 concepts of Vergemeinschaftung and Vergesellschaftung, as I understand it, the, the process of creating the community or the society. And he didn't make the same kind of value judgment that Turnus was making. He didn't see society as uh, inferior to community. He saw, saw them both as, as neutral arrangements, but he tried to explore more uh, how they're formed and uh, what they're grounded in. That that society is something that is built rationally, uh, whereas community is something that comes from emotion, from a feeling of belonging, being a part of something. And between these these two thinkers, they teased out the difference and really pointed to the possibility of an alternative to a mechanical rational rule-bound society something that could draw more on the emotion the and and the experience of being part of something yeah this this whole idea that community was based on shared experience so the first world war provided a place where people could really experiment with those ideas for for both tunius and for weber this idea of the emotional connection in community was grounded in shared experience. Tinius would talk about ideas like tribe and uh, tribe and ethnicity, and the war really provided a showdown where those ideas of a people needing to come together against an outside enemy was really put into action. The Kaiser gave a famous speech at the beginning of the First World War where there was a call for what was known as Bergfrieden, or the fortress peace. It's the idea of uh, a nation under a nation engaged in a modern war was like an old castle under siege. All of the different people inside of it needed to put aside their differences and work together in order to survive the onslaught of the external enemy. So as part of this whole spirit of 1914 and the, the spirit of the fortress peace, people began to talk about a Volksgemeinschaft, a folk community that would come together to see Germany through the war. And uh, the Socialist Party suspended its, its activities toward, like it was often agitating toward a more democratic society or democratic reforms. Uh, they, they put that on hold and declared loyalty. The parties all agreed to suspend partisan politics and to throw their support behind the emperor or behind the Kaiser and, and work towards Germany's victory in the war. Now, this moved along quite successfully for some time. It, it managed to mobilize, the idea of the fortress peace and the Volksgemeinschaft in the war managed to mobilize popular support behind the war effort. But as time went on, it began to fray around the edges, particularly as the British blockade began to create significant shortages and a black market emerged. If, if you were wealthy, you could still afford food on the black market. Well, if you were relying on rationing from the government, 
you were falling below starvation levels. The so-called turn of winter of 1916-17 saw people being reduced to 1,500 calories a day. So you're moving into starvation levels. And yeah, there, there are stories of, you know, children without shoes and stripping bark from trees in the Tiergarten in Berlin for nutrition to kind of boil some type of tea out of it. Uh, it, 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 as you might imagine, put a real strain on the sense of solidarity that had defined the home front up to that point. And then when the war ended and the great shock of a sudden defeat when the German people had been being told all along that they could expect victory and that it was just over the next hill and things were going fine, what followed instead was the chaos of the interwar Weimar years. Yeah, but of course, moving into the, the Weimar years, this idea of, of the people's community, though it had frayed along the edges uh, during the war, it never went away. And people came came back from the war or experienced the, the early post-war period looking to that idea with some nostalgia. And during the Weimar years, different political actors, not, not just national socialists, not just parties on the right, tried to mobilize this concept of, that had been powerful during the war to their own ends. But what this people's community really was, was still being worked out. Uh, it was, was being negotiated. It wasn't clear who or what the people were supposed to be identifying with. So different political actors tried to answer that question of, of what is the Volksgemeinschaft in different ways during the Weimar period. Uh, so for some, what being a part of the, the Volksgemeinschaft meant or what it should mean was to you know, express solidarity with the new republic, to be part of that new experimental community that was being built up uh, after the end of the Kaiserreich. For others, uh, it was all about finding a way to overcome this, this issue of class that had been plaguing the country since the 19th century, that if you look to identify with all of the rest of the people in the nation, rather than with your specific class as, as a, a worker uh, or as a member of uh, the bourgeoisie, as an alternative to that. But there's still other ways to try and repurpose this concept uh, that were used by, by Weimar era politicians. Uh, it was a, it had psychological value that, you know, building up the national community could restore German self-respect after this crushing and unexpected defeat in the war. Or it could be a, a move against or away from the West and Western civilization. Because remember, community is something that is different from society. It, it's different from you know, the this mechanical set of rules. If you identify with the community, then you can break with the ills of Western civilization. But the far right could use it, or try to use it with some success for other purposes of uh, to argue against democracy itself, to point at 
the the organization of the people into a community as superior to these the system of elections and it also started to take on anti-semitic rhetoric as well the, the racial character started to make its way into the concept of Volksgemeinschaft during the Weimar period because if you're identifying the people those who are a, a part of the community you're also identifying those who are outsiders uh, and more and more Jews came to be pointed as to as uh, people that were outsiders that weren't members of this community yeah it, it really the the German National People's Party which started as a um, and the German People's Party which started as monarchist reactions to the new democratic government were were very were sort of the originators of this entire idea of ethnic politics folkish politics that and their their version of the Volksgemeinschaft relied on this idea that innately German values ethnically German values were being corrupted by foreign influences, foreign influences that were specifically Jewish in nature. The idea of a Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy, right? This, this idea that because Marx had come from a family that was from, uh, from Jewish extraction, no longer practicing at that point, because Rosa Luxemburg, uh, part of the Berlin Independent Socialist Party uprising, and several of members of the... Um, the Munich Soviet, the short-lived Munich Soviet Republic that tried to break away from Germany after the war ended during this chaotic period, were all identified as having come from Jewish families, and therefore this was taken as an ever-increasing mound of evidence of this conspiracy of Jewish interests to advance communism as a way to undermine and tear apart Germany with these foreign ideas that were somehow alien to what a good proper German, which is to say a, an established middle class nationalist German would believe. And, and ideas that looked to break people apart on the basis of class, all about class, class conflict, uh, rather than trying to unify people, regardless of their class, into a community of Germans. Yeah. So in this environment, that is where, and, and the other thing to keep in mind about the Weimar period is just how radical the politics are. Right, like you have the hyperinflation that occurs in 1923-24, the entire monetary system collapse, previously established families see their life savings wiped out. You have the rise of radical communist politics, which had been more or less been put on hold by the war. But then in 1917, the Soviet Union, which was from Germany's perspective, right next door, had suddenly completely overthrown a, a previous monarchist system and established this communist, uh, new communist system. So with a little help from Germany. With a little help from Germany, yeah. So talk about the irony there. The absolute political disorder of the Weimar era contributed to ever more radical solutions and ever more radical and, and therefore exclusionary visions of what community meant as people, as, as politics grew increasingly polarized and the situation worsened, the, the visions of community that would overcome this problem and return us to this 
sort of golden moment in German history when the nation came together uh, against an outside enemy. How could we get back to that? And it, it's in that environment that you see Hitler's ever more racially defined concepts of what it is to be German and what what it is to be an alien to the people's community uh, comes comes into political power. This is to point out the power of this myth that Jews were deeply involved in the Bolshevik revolution in what became the Soviet Union, and that Hitler in particular latched onto this idea in developing his his own very specific brand of anti-Semitism, uh, and that he used this conspiracy theory uh, in working out his own definition of the Volksgemeinschaft. Yeah, so maybe... Uh, Maybe we should talk about what exactly Hitler's vision was, what, who he saw as being members of the community, and what their responsibilities were. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting concoction of what it is to be German. Okay, so Hitler was basing his understanding of what a, a good German and member of the racial community was on on a myth of German origins, on the idea that Germans had come from Nordic people who had endured in a hostile environment where the only way for them to survive was to come together and you know, work for each other. And that it's, it's almost like a biological uh, notion to it. Uh, that that Germans had developed in this crucible, creating a race that was destined to create order from chaos. That uh, a a good German was somebody who could uh, and would work for other good Germans, uh, and and that this is something that was natural to them. And what Hitler thought was that uh, the problems that had developed in the German community stemmed from the interference of Judeo-Bolshevism or in, in causing Germans to identify with their class rather than with other Germans. And that members of the community should support Hitler and the Nazi party in their attempt to undo this damage that had been done by the, the supposed Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy and uh, bring Germany back together and revive these uniquely German attitudes towards how they should treat each other and work for each other. Yeah, this idea that they could get back to a classless society defined on race and these supposedly innately German concepts of what Hitler called an ethical, moral sense of work and duty. So what ended up coming out of this was a definition in a school book from 1936 that showed this idea that to yes you had to be uh, an Aryan right a quote-unquote Aryan a, a German uh, to be a part of this community but that membership depended on your willingness to fulfill those duties so the definition from the 1936 textbook is that it was a goal of ethnic politics that every so-called racial comrade began life with, 
but that it was something that needed to be shaped and implemented by individuals, but more importantly, by the leaders of a people. So in this case, this would be the party as this kind of organic manifestation of the German nation's will, right? Now, the idea was that membership in the people's community was bound with rights and duties. So if you violated those duties, if you failed to fulfill them, or worse, you went against them, it actually constituted a betrayal of the people that would exclude you from the people's community. It would turn you into an alien to the community, a Gemeinschaft Fremde. And in serious cases, as the textbook said, results in ostracism and even death. Yeah. So would you see this 1936 definition as maybe gestures towards implementing Hitler's idea of the Volksgemeinschaft? Uh, a roadmap to how leadership could create what Hitler is talking about, how it could overcome the influences of Judeo-Bolshevism, or do you think it's something different? I think that the 1936 textbook definition is very much outlining this concept that there are rights, but uh, rights and responsibilities that but so you have to fulfill your duties and if you don't fulfill your duties there are consequences for failing the people or worse betraying them or, or doing something that is interpreted or defined as the regime as a betrayal of the people but that if you fulfill those duties there are privileges that go along with them so i guess the the change that i see happening here from what Hitler had originally laid out to this 1936 definition. It's it almost feels like a turn away from an idea that a German inevitably will belong to the community, uh, that it's only outside interference that could keep them from their birthright of, of being a member of the Volksgemeinschaft, as Hitler seems to be suggesting. Uh, whereas the the 1936 definition. Is, seems to be saying that that this community needs to be built and that uh, regular Germans more or less need to choose whether they're going to help build it or not and benefit from it in the process. That's true, but I, I don't think that that's missing from Hitler's earlier definition. I think it's just a shift in emphasis, right? There's always this underlying idea that German people can be lost to alien ideas. They can follow ironically enough in the Marxist sense, a false consciousness of <laughs> ideas and ethics that are somehow alien to them and, and come from an outside influence that is poisoning and corrupting their, you know, quote unquote, natural beliefs and tendencies and inclinations and that people can be lost that way. But yeah, I, 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 I do see what you mean about there being a shift in emphasis away from the idea that there's an external that this is an external problem and that this is now a choice that you need to make to fulfill those duties or else, right? Carrot and stick. Yeah. And you know that that may be a consequence of, of the fact that the Nazi power, party was in power by 1936, and we're beginning to make real efforts to exclude those outside forces as they saw them from the German community. So you could expect problems to come from within. And at the same time, they're, they're also 
this is no longer existing in a vacuum as you say they've also been making increasing efforts to try and create the what what hitler saw as one of his major goals a modern consumer society in germany that extended the benefits of a consumer society to members of the people's community right sure something like the strength through joy uh, organization that you know, sought to you know, give people that you would call the working class in anything but a classless society opportunities to experience some of the finer things in life to for example there's there are these cruise ships that are that are built for the strength through joy uh, program uh, and you know regular germans are, are given an opportunity to go out on have a vacation uh, in effect uh, benefiting from being a part of the german state and getting experiences that they may not otherwise have had. Yeah. And there's like, there has been a lot of research that's connected the idea of the people's community to a consumer community. Yeah. Uh, and cause there's all that, I mean, one of the major deliveries was the idea of the Volksempfänger, the people's radio, right. That you, you were delivering not just benefits through, not just social benefits through the charities and through the, the strength through joy sort of initiatives, but also a modern consumer society that was defined by consumer goods and electronics and new gadgets, right? Like there, there's definitely a sense that Nazism and the people's community is closely linked to a modernization of German society. And that that's also linked to the entire idea that there is a rejection of class. It's not just that, that these, it's not just that the working class needs help. It's that there's supposed to be a, a dissolution of the boundaries between the aristocracy, the bourgeoisie, and the working class, which were still very strongly pronounced at that time in German history. Yeah, and well, I guess that gets to the question of uh, whether the Volksgemeinschaft was realized or if it was just all talk. Well, this is where we get into the heated historical debate part, because much ink is being spilled uh, in, in most recently about this topic. Indeed. So uh, I, I guess we can kind of categorize them into schools of thought, though. We've, we've been talking about uh, the how material benefits of being part of the state as a whole may have influence people to identify as part of the Volksgemeinschaft. So maybe that's the the right place to start. Yeah, the consumer society. People experienced real benefits from Nazism and that as a consequence they were willing to identify with it and and embrace it. Guts Alley has has talked about this idea demonstrating, you know, just how much uh, regular Germans got from Nazi pillage of the rest of Europe, that regular people had a stake in what was being built, uh, whether whether the thing that's being built was, was propaganda or not, that they were experiencing real material benefits uh, from it. Ulrich Herbert uh, makes a, a similar point, saying that uh, some people were brought in line with Nazi racial policies in particular uh, because they had regular contact with the realities of those policies. 
particularly when it came to Jews or or foreign workers, uh, that that regular Germans were benefiting from that, and that that helped to bring Germans into the fold and, and get them to embrace the idea of the Volksgemeinschaft, uh, if not uh, the reality of it. Yeah, and those arguments are really compelling, especially when you compare them to what had been written before that point. The initial point of view that was advanced by social historians in the 1970s was that all of this discussion of a classless society and solidarity and uh, a people's community was just a propaganda myth. It was something that had not been translated into a social reality. It was something that people did not experience in a material way. It was not a concrete existing reality. It was uh, a propaganda slogan that the regime whip used to whip up support, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, why, why is it that there was so much resistance to accepting that maybe there was something more to Volksgemeinschaft uh, than a, a bit of Nazi propaganda? I was it uncomfortable to, to think that maybe there was some reality to it, or at least uh, that maybe some Germans believed in the promise of the Volksgemeinschaft? Well, there are two things that would happening from within the historical profession. There was a lot invested in that time in the idea of the working class as the resistance to National Socialism. Marxist historians were particularly active in the late 1960s and in the 1970s talking about working class resistance to Hitler as really the only outcropping of resistance to Hitler. and that was connected with much more complicated and entangled cultural politics just about the idea that you can't as a german after the war psychologically confront the idea that the country had willingly bought into the core tenet the core idea of nazism and all of the promises that it represented but also the exclusion and, and extermination that it had resulted in yeah, so it's very uncomfortable to to think that maybe Germans really did see themselves as a part of this project that Hitler had been championing, because there there was such an effort to psychologically distance uh, Germans from from what had happened during and for the war. Well, like when you're talking about Goetz Ali, right? There was also a lot of stuff in the early '80s that came out that was talking about this whole idea of the consumer society. And it was really dismissed by a lot of the original social historians of the 70s because that still fit into the counter argument of this is this is just window dressing. This is not a real change in social affairs. This is a photo opportunity to get a bunch of working class people sunning themselves on a, a cruise ship deck in the, the Norwegian fjords, right? Rather than a, a meaningful change in their their everyday lives. The, but at the same time, there's this entire counterpoint to that, that that's come out that says, even if it didn't necessarily result in a material reality, it still knocked down a lot of important social barriers about entry into certain institutions. And it contributed to breaking down the old social class system that in Germany, I mean, at the end of the First World War, soldiers and officers still didn't dine together. They didn't speak to each other, right? Like it was 
there were very strong class divides and that this process in many ways opened up or created a space where it was possible to to think about moving between classes that's the that's the school of thought that it was a partially existing social reality so because you're saying that that some changes some real changes did emerge and that class divisions did to some extent uh, break down yeah like you could you could go and you could train and you could become an officer right you could become a non-commissioned officer you could be you could go through a labor training program and you could enter industry in ways that and get an education in ways that you previously couldn't the existence of the adolf hitler school system that was intended to create a party a political elite from specifically disadvantaged german youth right these were all projects that were contributing to breaking down those class lines at the same time there's also a lot of literature that says particularly in the education system it really just reproduced the old social divides but i don't know i i think there's a lot that could be compared to the the rise of that kind of soviet middle class under stalin right like theoretically we live in a classless society uh-huh. honestly we've just restructured it but the new currency is ideology <laughs> sure uh, that there's still going to be people on the top in the middle and the bottom uh but you've just rearranged how they get there right in their willingness to engage in in the nazi project and to to signal their support for its aims right if you espouse the values then you open a career path mm-hmm. well i mean there's there's some some social change there sure but, but there's still the issue of uh, you know do the people who are only interested in career uh, who then spout the party line because they know that's that's the way to advance uh, they really feel like they're a part of something uh, do they feel like they're part of a, a community uh, or are they just conscious of the rules of the game and, and they're playing by those rules well that's the whole idea in, in modern parlance of the nudge right if you if you set up a certain <laughs> goal and you reward it then people will move toward it but i i you're you're definitely pointing toward the other school of thought this idea that the idea of a people's community was a promise awaiting fulfillment. Yeah. So this is another uh, approach to understanding Volksgemeinschaft that uh, it was aspirational uh, if it wasn't ever realized. Right. So how does this really differ from the idea that Volksgemeinschaft was all propaganda? Is it the way that German people look at it? That if Germans have embraced this idea that, that there should be a classless community of all Germans, but that it's not necessarily a, a social reality, is, is that what, what differs this approach? Saying that it was still all talk, but Germans believed it, rather than it just being propaganda sent out by the regime. Well, maybe not necessarily. I think the important difference is that it doesn't assume it doesn't assume a confrontational attitude between the regime and the population. Instead, yes, it does still assume that the people's community was this subjectively experienced reality, like it was a change of mental landscape rather than physical landscape, if you will, but that it was something that meant the people bought into the aims of the regime, even if they weren't there yet, 
regardless of what could realistically be accomplished, it was a broader social project that the German people supported. And so therefore they bought into the regime, they volunteered, they donated their time and treasure, and they participated in the Nazi regime in a way that they wouldn't have. And, and I mean, that gets back into the larger question about reasons for German support and the legitimacy of the regime in the eyes of Germans as, as a political means to an end, right? This idea that they, they were looking out for their own self-interest as they perceived it, and this was the project that, that they believed in, right? So, and that's a very different set. It's a very different way to think about the relationship between state and society as compared to the idea that, oh, well, it's just a propaganda slogan on, or it's a lie and the government was just putting one over on the German people to, you know, trick them into supporting Nazism, but it never had their interest at heart. Uh, at heart. So it doesn't assume that that sort of, uh, I guess, as I said, adversarial relationship. And it assumes instead that the German people saw something in Nazism that, that they could identify with or that they liked or that they would, would benefit from. That they, yeah, that they believed in a project that they wanted to contribute to, which again is a much scarier idea than you have this little group of people at the top that were just lying to everybody and tricking them, right? Instead, the population has agency in this view and chose to take part because they believed in it, even if it wasn't there yet. This does, you know, leave open a little bit why exactly the German people would believe in this this promise what was it that appealed to them in the future world that nazism was trying to build smeich and ackerman kind of gives a few different components of of nazism as a whole that uh, drew people to the idea of Volksgemeinschaft, uh, the promises of it uh, and he, he points out that some people just believed in the ideology that, that for many, uh, Nazism as a worldview was very appealing, that, that they were behind it for that reason, but that there were other things uh, besides being you know, a, a committed hardline Nazi that brought people to identify with the regime and its goals, now, that if you believe that uh, this new and better social system is going to be built, a, a classless society, uh, where your life is just going to be better, that there's a that would be a reason to be behind uh, the, the project as a whole. That, you know, as we talked about earlier, uh, there were some potential material benefits uh, for people. Uh, but also, people, people always want to belong. They want to feel like they're a part of something that's meaningful and that's something else that the Volksgemeinschaft seemed to offer belonging and emotional that, that there was an, an emotional appeal to the movement uh, as a whole uh, and beyond that you know to the extent that the idea of Volksgemeinschaft was propaganda some people just bought into the propaganda uh, mm -hmm. I don't think that you can say that it wasn't propaganda that, that there wasn't that Volksgemeinschaft was not formatted as a, a propaganda message uh, it was. It was. It was sold to the German people. 
or whether the German people were receptive to that or not, or whether it was reality or not, the regime was pushing the idea. And and some people some people bought into it. Yeah, but I think the idea is that as soon as you begin discussing it as propaganda, you attribute a cynical instrumental purpose in at least in the modern usage in the post-world war ii usage of propaganda and i think that's the difference in this idea of the volksgemeinschaft as a social promise uh-huh well okay although I, I hitler hitler point. was quite oh sorry no I, I take your point uh but this was not a ground-up idea at least not by the 1930s or, or the 1940s the, the regime was trying to shape the way people saw the people's community yeah and how to contribute to it and what it meant to be a member but yeah and at the and, same and time conveying that message i think you can call that propaganda i'm sure okay the word carries some baggage with it but it's more than just vague vague promises of, of better times to come Right. But what I'm saying is that, well, this brings us to the fourth school of thought about it, which is that it was not merely and one that is imminently compatible with the, with the school of view we, we've just been discussing. The idea that Volksgemeinschaft was a, a, as opposed to simply being a promise awaiting fulfillment, it was an aim of the regime that should be investigated to understand how that goal shaped policy and practice. Yeah, so we can use use the idea to understand the regime itself, uh, not just people and the extent to which they supported that regime. Yeah, what it what the benefits of inclusion were, we have a lot of knowledge about what the consequences of exclusion were, but we also don't really know a whole lot yet about what the borderline between inclusion and exclusion was in cases of people who who were kind of cutting straddling that edge right mm-hmm. um and and that's this idea that looking at the volksgemeinschaft and looking at how looking at how the regime sought to implement its goal and what it understood as delivering on the promise of creating a people's community tells us a lot about on the one hand why people were attracted to that idea or why they continued to buy into it, if that's the case, or what what the regime saw as, as defined as a people's community and what it was moving toward. So would you put Thomas Kuna into this category, into this uh, view, so that, this approach okay. to, to Volkswagenschaft? Because uh, he... he takes the position that it was you know, participation in efforts by the regime to exclude people, and particularly uh, the Holocaust, that brought Germans together and gave them a sense of community and a sense of belonging, that that destroying the other fortified identification with the in-group, with the community. Well, he's he doesn't really neatly cut along one way or the other. On the one hand, it's it's part of practice, but on the other hand, it's also part of this school of thought that is how how was community a subjectively experienced reality or uh, implementation? But yeah, it definitely leans more towards this idea of how does the concept of a racial community shape policy and practice, but then 
how does the enacting of a, a racial community draw those borders and either pull people in or cut them off? Yeah, so it says that there's there's a feedback relationship there that that policies aims towards forming the community, or I guess policies aimed at uh, excluding people from the community can cause people that are not excluded to more closely identify with that community. So in, when, when we're thinking about Volksgemeinschaft as uh, a goal that shaped the way that policy was formed, I think we should also think about, about a, a reaction to the way people responded to those policies. And, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to get back by get it by, by thinking about feedback between the two. That creating an, an in-group and an out-group is, is kind of the, the first step towards, towards creating the community. Uh, but that is an, an inherently violent process that, that you have to cut some people out if you're trying to build this, this racial Volksgemeinschaft. But that creating that community and that separation itself puts people in a position to act more violently and reinforce the divisions between the community and the outsiders. Absolutely. I, I think the title from Michael Vilt's book, I think from 2006, it was translated in 2009. It has a slightly different title in English. The German title is really telling. It's Racial Community as Self-Empowerment. And I think that really, as always, it's often easier to understand these phenomenon when you cast them in extremes. That's why I more or less use the, the approach that he suggests about looking at, at the concept of racial community as through practice, policy and practice with policing. But that that idea that you you create a community through exclusion and that you tighten the bonds of that community through through actions towards people who are excluded or by defining who is included and excluded and and you know enjoying the benefits of being a member reinforcing it it's another really great article by john connolly called the uses of volksgemeinschaft and the way that he writes really tends to emphasize the instrumentality of claims made on the on the people's community by average germans but you can really see this this reciprocal relationship of the privileges of being a member playing out at a district level in in a small town, right? Uh, it's it's all about letters between people from the party district in Eisenach and the party district leadership, and sort of the 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 claims that are being made for social assistance or housing or things like that by people in the language of Volksgemeinschaft. So, what's the takeaway from that? That that people instrumentalized the concept people used it to to try and gain gain personal advantage i think that's that that's his issue is that uh -huh. the way that he writes about it overemphasizes instrumentality i think that there's a much more complex feedback loop that's happening here like you say there's a, there's a reciprocity of reinforcing the boundaries through exclusion through creating a sense of community through enjoying material advantages and privileges of being a member, of seeing the consequences of being ostracized from that community that create that and, and just 
Also, it's important not to divorce all of the discussion of a Nazi racial community and the benefits of that community and the order that it, it represents from the chaos and near complete political collapse of Germany in the 1920s. So all of those together create this, this feedback loop where people are both attracted and, uh, and in many ways rewarded for being members when there are very clear consequences for rejection. So it's the worst kind, it's the worst kind of, um, kind of oppressive because it's, it, it really benefits the people who take part in it. And it, it gives them a sense of purpose and belonging. And if that's not enough for them, it also puts a little, it puts a cherry on top, right? But if you're not a member, then you're subject to ostracism, uh, social marginalization, and even extermination in the case of the Jews and, and certain so-called asocial groups. So Schmeichen Ackerman asks you know, how, how powerful a concept uh, this is, uh, Volksgemeinschaft, and, and seems to suggest that it is, it is one uh, of, of several uh, useful tools for understanding the, the Nazi regime, but that you know, it can't stand on its own. Do you, do you think that we get more from the concept of Volksgemeinschaft uh, than we do from something like, oh, cumulative radicalization or you know, the idea of a self-policing society? Is, is the concept more useful than those or, or you know, is, it, is it just one, one more way among many? Because we already have all of these different ways to, to try and understand you know, what, what the Volksgemeinschaft was, how potent it was, where it was effective. Was it effective in, in practice, in propaganda? Uh, is it, is it a, a useful concept right now? So I'm I'm a complete convert. I think that the social historians of the 1970s were incorrect and rather two-dimensional in their approach to the idea because there's because of the type of social history that they were doing, they were looking at it in a very narrow sense of did it materially impact people's lives in a way that it in very specifically defined ways. And I think when you look when you look at it from a social cultural viewpoint, so I'm really I'm not being as forceful as I need to here. <laughs> it's a it's a tier one concept for understanding Nazi mm -hmm. Germany. You cannot understand Nazi Germany without understanding the draw and and the rewards and the consequences for exclusion from the, the people's community, right? Like this, this was the project that the Nazis came to power at its core, what they were promising to do with Germany. They were going to overcome class divides. They were going to drive out alien influences. They were going to restore people's ability to work for a goal that was greater for themselves. And they were going to rebuild the nation. And all of that is in Volksgemeinschaft. All of that is in this idea of a people's community. And like it really, it's at the core of the idea of both how you can build upon and how you can 
and, and how the regime could build upon support and the ways that it could reinforce that through terror by defining the boundaries of where that community were. So you can't understand why people were treated in particular ways without the, the Volksgemeinschaft. You can't understand why people would support the regime without it. And you can't, you know, like it, it's one of those ideas that does a lot of heavy lifting, right? It's, it's in the same way that the Hitler myth lets us to see the ways that people could explain away the, the consequences of the Nazi regime as, oh, well, Hitler didn't know. The, the Volksgemeinschaft gives us that it, it's the core of the regime. Now, it's not just another concept. Like the, so what? Like, uh, yeah, it's not, you're right. It's not just another concept. I, I think that, that that's pretty clear. But how to wield it is, I think, the, the big question. Uh, because you say it can do a lot of the heavy lifting. I, I worry that it, it is almost too potent, uh, that it's too flexible, and that we need to be aware of the fact that uh, Volksgemeinschaft probably meant something very different to different people in different contexts. And So I think that's part I, of the investigation that needs to be done. Yeah. I think that's part of what this whole group of people who are investigating what community is a social promise meant to different people, what they're doing. I, I think that the most valuable use of Volksgemeinschaft as a, a conceptual tool for researching and understanding the Nazi regime is as policy and practice. I think that's, you know, that's where you see where theories of community and concepts of community and criteria for membership met real practice, right? That, that's where you see the philosophy interact with people's lives, right? That's where it changes them. Particularly if you're interested in the police and the police practice. But I also think that it speaks to a lot more than that. If you're looking at, say, the German labor front in the, in the National Union that you needed to have good terms with if you wanted to go anywhere, or the people's welfare and all of, all of those types of things. Like, I, I think, again, borderline cases are a great way to investigate where the borders were, and then that reveals why they fell where they were. But that there, you can do it in more than just the exercise of violence. I think that the, there's a lot to be found about what the benefits of being a German were and that then speak to why Germans supported Nazism when you start looking at other institutions just beyond the ones that are charged with the exercise of state violence. Okay. Well, when we look at institutions that are not about exclusion, is the concept as useful? You still have to qualify as a member and you still have to prove you're a member to get in the front door. And there is a criteria for membership that is changing that I am not convinced is fully elucidated. And that, that I think is, anyway, there's a lot to be done with. Mm -hmm. so, so you're saying that 
that the concept was still flexible, just as it had been during Weimar. In what way? Certain, well, certainly less flexible. Well, you, you're saying that that the criteria or the the location of the the borders uh, were moving. Right, but just because something changes doesn't mean that it didn't have a real effect on life, mm. and that it didn't start change the way that life was experienced in in, in very real ways at different times. I think that there's a tendency to want to find a static description. And so something like Volksgemeinschaft, which is a cultural concept that moved with the times and developed, is treated with a level of disdain by more empirically minded colleagues. But there is an empirically grounded case to be made when you start to look at material decisions that affect people's lives that were grounded in, in this language and in very specific criteria that that were evaluated based on your contributions to that community. You know, what constituted a contribution? Why, why, why was one contribution to the Volksgemeinschaft more valuable than another, right? Those types of questions and, and how that, you know, how the point system changes over time, right? Like, that's important. Is anyone doing that work? I haven't read the... Uh, one of the edited collections that make has an essay in it that looks like there may be somebody who's moving in that direction. But I, I think that this is a real, the, an important point to understand the regime. Certainly to understand why Germans supported it and why they engaged in certain behaviors, you know, what those behaviors meant. Well, it's certainly powerful. And just being... Being a, a contrarian, you know, I, I want to tell you why you're wrong, but it's pretty tough in this situation. But you know what? Let's let's take a crack at it all the same. Uh, the, the little bit of time that we've got left here. How don't we need to be able to get into you know, almost the mind of the regular German and uh, reconstruct their experience? Uh, in order to show that Volksgemeinschaft as, as a, a concept uh, had had an effect on them. Uh, and that is possible, sure, uh, difficult, but possible. Uh, but then don't we also have to assume that, you know, everybody has, has a different subjective experience when encountering something uh, as nebulous uh, as this concept? Isn't it a little bit presumptuous uh, to to assume that that we can isolate the effect of this even in in one time now you know what that's all crap <laughs> it's all crap i've got nothing <laughs> it's it's great it's great <laughs> it's folks combined chef trust me yeah man but it's not it's not just trust me but i do think that there needs yeah. to be more i at this point it is to an extent, just trust me. Uh, I think that more needs to be done to talk about, to investigate what the indicators and uh, that sort of secured membership or exclusion were. There's some stuff in the 80s that was done on that, but mostly just really the what laid the foundations for a lot of work that's just been coming out now that really shows how, how important it was. And I, if we could go back into like the, the it, like there's an article about political evaluations and Schmieck and Ackermann's work with the Blockwart, right? Like the the party, uh, party the block 
party representative, right? Um, those those points of interaction and how they how they determined who was a member and who was an outsider. Those those are important things to investigate. And and a lot of that work has been done with exclusion, but I think there's a lot to be done in terms of inclusion, what mattered and what qualified for, for special privileges. But I mean, isn't giving special privileges to any member of the Volksgemeinschaft to violate the, the concept just by itself? You know, that, that you're, you're in it or you're not. And so, some Germans aren't more German than other Germans, right? Some Germans are more attuned to supposedly innate values than others are. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Some are... Uh, I mean, if you look at the language, uh, that the, poli- the way the police talks about groups that they're excluding, it's always about being misled or... like It's the idea of the prodigal son who's been led astray by this alien intellectual like you know like liberal egotism right like ooh, individuality got its hooks in him right and and now he needs he's uh, he's lost to the people's community he doesn't he's not a member anymore right invariably it's a he in gestapo documents so sure but anyway I, i think that it's it's a really it's one of those key terms and it's one of those terms that that speaks to why people are it, it, if you don't understand this term you don't understand the language of politics and the way that people thought about politics all the way through the Weimar period into the into the Nazi period and if you don't understand what that meant to contemporaries you can't understand anything that happens in that period And so just just in those terms alone, it deserves to be understood. I think that it has a lot more to clarify uh, in, in terms of actually winning support for the Nazi regime and, and why Germans went along with all of the horrible crimes of the Nazis. But uh, yeah, anyway, one for the one, one to remember. <laughs> yeah, well, for, for sure one to remember and uh, one that I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about. And on that note, we draw this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. If you enjoyed it, please consider letting us know, or someone else know, and helping us build the audience for the podcast. We haven't really decided what we're going to do next time. We're looking at recording some more of these Roots of Nazism type episodes, and we also have a backlog of research about the end phase to get ahead with. But whatever ends up coming out the other side of the tube, we hope to see you there. Until then.